when you say leaky, what comes to mind to me is like there's just like sloppy, it's like messy. It's not thoughtful the way we've yeah. designed our environments and the way that we're living. And so, yeah, there is this, this all of these like open loops of of potential being wasted, being lost, and actually becoming a pollute, pollutant and a contaminant. And so this idea of um, communities of farmers working together or communities supporting farmers to have the opportunity to work together and share nutrients, share equipment, share space, having overlapping enterprises that work together, that is an inspiring vision. And feels like a way more realistic vision in the near future for people to enter into agriculture in a in a in a way where we're still striving for this wholeness Welcome to the Real Organic podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Zach Wolf, the former farm manager at Al Gore's Real Organic Project certified Caney Fork Farms in Tennessee. Zach was speaking about a more collective approach to farming that could help build the small farm revolution that so many of us are a part of. Zach had lots of great insights into building a more regionally-based agriculture that closes nutrient cycles so that our farms are less extractive and more resilient. I'm talking today with Zach Wolf. He's the farm manager at Caney Fork Farm. Hi, Zach. Hi, Lindley. Good to see you. Tell me. Yeah, you too. Tell me a little bit about Caney Fork. Where are you and what are you producing there? Yeah, so I'm in um, Carthage, Tennessee. We're about an hour east of Nashville, right off of Route 40. So you can picture Tennessee kind of being a bowl that feeds into Nashville. As you drive out of that bowl up into the plateau, we're kind of like midway through that plateau, right in the middle of the state. Um, And you have a view to the back looking to the north of the farm. And if you can make out the tree line, that's the other side is the Caney Fork River. So that's the namesake for the farm, Caney Fork Farms. And we have about two miles of ri- river frontage uh, on the farm. And uh, this site here in Carthage is about 250 acres that we farm. We have another site on the other side of town that's 274 acres. And then we lease another uh, 180 acres in another county away. And so between all of those sites, it's close to 700, 750 acres, most of which is certified organic, um, about two-thirds, and then another third that's in the process of being converted to organic. Ah, that's in hence Caney Fork Farms. Caney Fork Farms. <laughs> I should have gotten, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you got three locations. And so, sorry, you were explaining about the organic status. Hey, that's okay. Just just that the, um, the main transitional crop right now is... Uh, what we have in the ground is soybeans that'll be going into barley that'll be going into alfalfa hay um, okay. and that land will so all acreage should be certified organic by 2023. Okay so that that yeah. new kind of the grain production is that um, is that something new that's happening on the farm that hasn't before? What all are you producing there? Our main our, our main products are meat so we we produce beef um, pork and lamb um, and hay and vegetables 
and we are starting to get into the chestnut game. We have about 55 acres planted out into silvo pasture, chestnut, orchards, and last year we produced about 3,000 pounds of chestnuts from an orchard that is actually mature, had been managed under conventional practices, and we just converted it. And um, maybe got lucky, but the yield basically doubled in the first year of management, going from conventional to organic. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. But the great. What do you attribute that to? Was it a great weather year, or did you do some cover cropping or something different? Good luck. I, no, I think, it, <laughs> <laughs> I think that the, um, you know, the soil was coming back into shape. Um, we uh, worked with Will Britton at Woods End Lab to do a, a pretty thorough soil health analysis. And um, we put on some good um, composted poultry manure and some lime. Mm -hmm. and took the chemicals out of the system and it seemed like the soil was just ready to start rebounding and uh yeah it's and 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 that yield is actually not on the low end for what it could be so we're still kind of discovering what the potential is of this five acre orchard it's been a i don't i don't need to get too off on a tangent on chestnuts right off the way but it's kind of been this like fun discovery of uh, a crop because we have, you know, 50 acres here planted. The oldest trees are four years old. So working with a crop that has this longer arc of maturity, it's sort of like, you know, this long courtship and, you know, hopeful um, investment that something's going to work out the way that it's intended. And then with this mature orchard that we were fortunate enough to get a lease on, it's kind of like this window into what that future could look like. And we still feel like the varietals that we have planted out here and the genes that we have to work with here and the, the soil and how the soil has been managed here, it's like above and beyond even what, what we're looking at on that five acres. So, Wow. So I know nothing about chestnuts. And I'm really curious. I don't even know how you harvest them yeah. or market them or anything. But I do want to start out a little bit of history of the farm because you're you're kind of um, on a celebrity farm, and I think uh, everybody should know that. Uh, so whose farm is this? Are you talking about Renan, my veggie manager? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am. <laughs> I've heard great things. Uh, uh, so yeah, this is a good place to start. So the farm is owned by Al Gore. This is uh, land that's been in his family since the 40s, I believe. And, um, you know, it's, it's like a privilege to be able to work with him and to be able to manage land that is so important to him and his family. Um, yeah, so everything we do, you know, in addition to just trying to be as good at farming as we can, which is a full-time job, um, has this climate um, lens. So uh, we host a research program here in collaboration with um, Michigan State University, Skidmore College, uh, UT Knoxville, Woods End Lab, um, and the Open Team. Oh, wow. Which is a shared network of, of farmer um, open source data and um, technology to, you know, um, monitor and measure what's actually happening on these farms. 
and share that data. What are you measuring? Is it more than just organic matter over time? Or what else are you in, well, in relation the, to the climate emphasis? Yeah. Um, so this, the, the soil organic matter and the soil carbon is like the main focus right now, um, just because we feel there's still a gap in how to do that at scale. Yes. Yeah. So it's one of the main bottlenecks right now to actually open up carbon markets that are working with soil is like we don't we don't know how much we have across this country yeah at, at, and we don't know how to monitor that at a in a cost effective way right now so that the markets can be responsive and accurate and um i have to say i'm so glad that somebody's asking this question because um, it makes me really nervous. Uh, obviously, if, if, if money is going to go out to farmers, this idea that if you're sequestering carbon on your farm, you would actually get some credits, financial credits for it. Um, but in talking to farmers across the country, you know, who have 12 plus year rotations, the, the soil organic matter goes up and down, as you probably know, uh, through rotations, it goes up and down different times of the year, you know, different places that you sample, different depths. So mm. there's probably so much uh, research to be done to just figure out how to accurately measure carbon. And then, of course, you could be robbing one place to increase the carbon on on another spot. And, and what do you do with that? You know, I yeah. don't know if you all have thought about that question, too. Well, you know, um, I remember Jeff Moyer from Rodale put it put it really well. He's like, if if the only thing we're looking at is carbon, then it's going to be a quick race to the bottom, because there are ways of getting carbon into the soil that aren't necessarily just about best practice. If you're not looking at carbon as linked to soil health and ecosystem functionality and biodiversity and Mm -hmm. as part of a, a bigger picture. And I think that's really important for people to understand. It's not just carbon. Um, mm -hmm. And the other piece of that related to the carbon markets, and I think what you were talking about is this idea of like, not all soils are created equal, not all management, even good management won't necessarily impact soil carbon the same in two different locations. So if like you yeah. have just a soil that's really... Um, well built to store carbon and you enter a carbon market, theoretically you're going to be more rewarded than someone in a region that has maybe more drought or um, those conditions, the, the, the climate just isn't as conducive or the soil type isn't as conducive to soil to store carbon. So a big part of what we feel is needed across the country is this common practice baseline which, is, which mm -hmm. exists in the forest markets right now, which means if you enter into the market, you're, not getting, you're getting compared to neighbors or to soils that are similar so that you can get a flush of credits when you enter in the market based on your management. So if you have 20 years of good management and you look at the soil carbon level now as compared to your neighbor, you're actually, you actually can cash in on all of that past good work. And that alone is a um, huge incentive for people to enter into the market because you can actually pay for inventory. You can um, basically pay for the cost of entering the game or be incentivized to enter the game much earlier on. So uh, there's a lot of really smart people, smarter than me, in our team that are saying this is essential to move this thing forward and to do common practice baseline, we need a better way to do soil carbon inventory at scale. 
Mm-hmm. And so we're we're here just part of that broader effort and kind of using our farm as a um, test case to to develop those tools and techniques. Do you know if anybody thought about that problem that I sort of touched on where you could have a confinement uh, dairy or feedlot and you're bringing in a bunch of grain and hay and then you've got all this manure piled up and then you spread it on the land around you and your organic matter goes up pretty nicely because you're, you're importing so much of that material. Have, have people kind of thought that through? Yeah. And so like what I'm, what I'm hearing you get at is this idea of like, if you're just looking at soil carbon, your actual management and the impacts of the management might not be recognized, or you might be robbing one place to feed and build up carbon in another. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that gets back to monitoring. So, you know, we we do have um, such advanced um, imagery that's coming off of land, like right now, probably someone's taking a picture of us. And if that... (laughs) Elon (laughs) Musk, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to get too scared about that thought but the um (laughs) so like with all of that data yeah how does that integrate with on the ground measurement and i think that if we were to build a more robust certification which i know is is kind of like your your mission and rop's mission then there needs to be some sort of monitoring that's linked to it and i think that we also need or, or the conversation is moving we need a third party certifier for this carbon thing because it you know we need someone to make sure that all of the the whole ecosystem the farm as a whole the watershed soil health is all integrated into this marketplace somehow and it's not just about this carbon bottom line because i don't see a way where um we would all be protected and the integrity of the intention would be protected in that other scenario. Yeah, it's astonishing to me that the USDA organic program isn't using satellite data in their monitoring because, as you know, the the program shows up, your inspector shows up on an announced day once a season, and of course they can do unannounced visits, um, but that doesn't happen enough, especially to, you know, some of the biggest, highest risk Farms aren't, aren't, they're not doing those unannounced inspections. And uh, we could be using satellite data to really, I mean, you can see cows, you can see cow pies, you can see when a field has been hayed. So you could really monitor whether, um, you know, dairy cows, for example, are actually grazing, which is one of the rules that they've had trouble enforcing. So I really hope we can, um, you know, continue to make the organic program actually mean something. And to me, that means using some of this satellite imagery that, yeah, it's a little freaky to think we could be, we are being uh, photographed at any moment, but at the same time, that's happening anyway, and we're not we're not using that data to to actually inspect farms. And I think we should be. Well put, yeah, hundred percent. And it begs the question: Why aren't we? You know, what right. don't what what doesn't the USDA want to see that they know exists? Because once they go into exploring that data, then theoretically, there's a record of that, and it's and it's potentially public information. So I think that, you know, there have been people talking about this in in terms of food justice issues. It's like they, 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 they know what data they need to collect to actually hit the problem, 
yeah and recognize um, what changes need to be made but they don't want to collect that data they want to ignore it and look at and look at the sources of data that they're comfortable with working with and the communities that they're comfortable working with so yeah. When it, when you mean the food justice angle, do you mean like the hours that people are in the field or what were you thinking of there? Oh, I'm thinking of like, you know, so all of these programs that have been rolling out in response to COVID and the relief programs and where that money is focused. And, oh, yeah. Um, I'm thinking of uh, communities that are most vulnerable, um, that are least uh, adaptable in these moments and it and it what i'm what i'm hearing from colleagues is that the 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 policymakers in many cases just aren't looking to collect data from those communities because of what they would find and and knowing that they'd have to actually res be, be more responsive and so it's hmm. it's not just like it's not just like, oh, it's it, we're confused about what's going on. It's like we deliberately don't want to know what's going on because then we'd have to address it. And I think that's a more troubling narrative, um, similar to your point about, you know, why aren't they using satellite imagery to look at these things? It's like because they, they, they don't want it's know. more comfortable yeah. when it's under the carpet. Yeah. Um, is that, distra is that, that distracting, the, the bull in the background? We just separated it I love it, it. It's very cute. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about your bull real quick, and then we'll <laughs> Did we you forget to about feed it. him? <laughs> when, yeah, we separated him. He, ha we, he has, like, a little bit of a health thing, so he's out of the herd for four days. And we were talking okay. about, like, where to do the interview. And um, <laughs> I was like, I think this will be quiet. It wasn't so quiet yesterday, but it felt quiet this morning, but... He tunes no, in. I love it. It's he very tunes authentic. In once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are actually doing some work there. Yeah. I want to go back to use that term race to the bottom in the certification program. And you don't want that to be the case because it is mm. what has happened to organic. And it was a lot of the concerns that the original farmers, the organic farmers before the um, movement was passed over, the certification was passed over to the USDA. They, um, many of the programs continued to this idea of continuous improvement, the farmers would meet together in a region, mm. you know, because all the certification was based on these regional mm. certification agencies, and they would come together and they would have these discussions. Well, what do you think about pla black plastic? Should we start restricting that? You know, they would talk about all these issues, and they would really try to increase the rigor under certified organic and a lot of farmer learning. And when it was passed over to the USDA, um, it, they made it very clear there that no certification agency could have standards that were better than another one. And so it just it hmm. stopped that um, farmer sharing and that increase um, uh, continuous improvement that was always part of organic. And so um, I, I want to know what you mean by kind of race to the bottom, too, because you use that term. What were you thinking of? Well, I, I thank you for that history. I actually didn't know that. That that was part of the history of the of the USDA. So in that scenario, these regional hubs, theoretically, some regions, some farmers in some in certain regions could be advancing quicker, depending on the net on the strength of the network and the community of learning. And That's the, how it was and, prior and to the, the National Organic Program. And yeah, the USDA like, was like no, we don't we don't Organic want that. Farmers. We want it to be right. blanket across. Yeah, it's kind of lowers the. I mean, it, that's so. That, it seems like such a miss to me because 
Um, I what I find disappointing in the certification process is there is a deliberate separation between your the the people that you're looking to to provide the certification and gateways towards improvement. Like they literally can't make recommendations to you, which I under yes. I understand in terms of this like you know it could they could be leading or it or it it could maybe. Um, I don't know. Maybe I don't even the competitive marketplace, so that maybe you share a tip that you, yeah, or just or I guess just like the certifier just needs to wear this this very objective hat where they're just coming through and they're just literally just translating what you're doing on the farm into paper, into a Uh paper trail, which is what it feels like. Yeah. On the other end of the certification, I mean, it just feels like paperwork, and it feels like there's so many opportunities for uh, a well-attuned certifying agent or certifying body or group of farmers to come to a farm, spend time on it, and have the lens of seeing farms all over the country or you know years of experience in agriculture and be able to help that farm improve or, or learn from that farm. And yeah, what a missed, talk about data, what a missed data set for the community and a missed yeah. opportunity to build stronger networks. Um, and because in the past too, organic really hasn't, there hasn't been a lot of funding in the university systems mm. um, or by industry to study. The whole history of it is farmer sharing and farmer learning. And so I, I do feel that we could get back to that. <clears throat> and that a um, little bit of that has been lost or a lot of that's been lost since yeah. the USDA took it over. Yeah, I mean, if I could, if I could just for two minutes talk a little bit about um, Demeter. Please do. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah, I have, I have nothing but the highest respect for um, what oh, they do. Good, good. Yeah. So full, so full disclosure. I'm on, I'm on the board of Demeter, and a, a big emphasis has been to kind of get in sync with what's happening in Europe right now. With biodynamic and, certification, and to let, yeah, Demeter is is the biodynamic certification for people that don't know. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> um, Demeter USA is getting in line with what's been happening in the European community or the international community, which is this okay. integration of of what they call farm talks or really um, making the certification process more um, human oriented. More, yes. more about the individuals who are on the farm, their relationship with the farm, their relationship with peers, that and and this bigger biodynamic community that has a wealth of information and knowledge to share. And in that model, there is both the baseline, like yeah, you need to have good record keeping, and you need to be at integrity, and you need to be. Um, at a standard that we're all holding each other to and accountable to. And there is this pathway, even if you miss your certification in year one, there's this pathway where you are supported to get there and you're uh, mm-hmm. learning along the way. And that, that to me, you know, to build capacity into a certification process, which is what we're trying to do at Demeter into the future so that we can integrate this peer-to-peer knowledge, community-based community-level agricultural advancement, I mean, to me, that's huge. And that, that is such a, a more inspiring picture of what certification can be 
and some yeah. and such a more inspiring way to participate in a certification other than feeling like there's this outside entity coming in making sure you're checking your boxes um, yes and I think it would be wonderful if that's something that the organic program could revisit I mean it feels like Lindley, to be honest, like so far, we're just trying to get them to do the basics and so, <laughs> right now, or you guys are trying to get them to do the basics. Um, but that's a, that's a much more holistic and um, visionary perspective, I think, to bring. And the movements, the biodynamic movement and the organic movement, they come you know, together from that same history. And so, you know, the fact that Demeter has been able to hold on to that farmer to farmer sharing and, you know, we want to bring that back into organic. I think uh, it's, it's important for us to kind of work together because we really do have that, that common, the common origins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, a hundred percent. And then I think that, um, you know, the other things that I feel like the biodynamic movement or biodynamic agriculture can can kind of weave back hopefully into organic is this concept of the har the farm as a whole entity mm. and the farm as um, really a place that's um, striving for wholeness and striving to be self-contained to a certain extent and this idea of limiting outside outside input in I think is something that organic could be striving towards and and, Absolutely. and I think that the conservation planning within organic could also be strengthened to a certain extent. And that's also a piece that's really integral, integral to the biodynamic certification is making sure that wildlife is included and this bigger ecological thinking is starting to integrate at the farm level. And in a way that's like not just checking the boxes either, which I remember when we had this uh, debate at the USDA about whether or not hydroponic was organic, mm. could be certified as organic. And I remember they said, well, we're going to check the boxes that there are, you know, at least four trophic levels in the, um, you know, present in the production. And I remember Francis Thickey, who's on our board, yeah. he was on the NOSB at the time. He just said, I can tell this is business as usual. You know, you've got a, a mouse running around in your building and there's a snake around, you know, maybe that's <laughs> gonna eat it. And he's like, check, check, check. Or, you know, it's four, pretty easy to- Four trophic levels in a hydroponic system? I mean, yeah, I know it was kind of like, mean? this is clearly business as usual. Yeah. And so, um, you know, if you can check the boxes, maybe you can come up with four bacteria that eat each other or something right. like that, that are in the water. It's just like, that is not what we're talking about when it comes to whole farm. And, and so could you talk a little bit to people who don't really understand um, agriculture as much? Like why, why are we talking so much about off farm inputs and why, why does that matter? Well, you know, I was thinking about that a lot this morning, and it, it's um, it's complicated right now because so much of the farm, you know, so many farms are they're they're naturally exporters, right? Like the far the the products leave the farm, mm -hmm. um, things leave the farm naturally, but the idea of limiting outside inputs. If for people that don't understand agriculture or understand large-scale organic agriculture, if you went to most of the large-scale berry farms, vegetable farms, and looked at where their fertility is coming from, most of it's not coming from the farm, I would wager. I don't know if you've seen the same thing, but I don't think 
that it's possible in those systems. So what that means is if, you, if you're striving for farm-generated fertility and you step back from that, all of a sudden your scale changes completely. So if you're looking at, at managing a vegetable crop, for example, and if you're a farmer and you understand how much nutrition is needed to raise a high-quality carrot, beet, tomato, whatever it is, that means compost, that means crop rotation, um, that means actually giving the land time to generate enough extra to give. That's like that's something that we forget about. Like these that like our nutrition as human beings comes from this generation, this gift from the place, from from the land itself. And that's that happens, you know, that happens in nature, but it happens at a scale that we're not used to thinking about. If you think of like foraging or hunting as a reference point, like think of the the acres, the millions of acres that are needed to create a whole ecosystem of large ruminants and of uh, you know f of tree crop and berries and the movement of the people across that landscape to get enough calories from that land. When you when you start to create a managed system, you can increase the productivity, but you need to also increase the space and the time for for the fertility to improve and build to give and you know in farms that are are crunched financially to produce as much on as little land as they can afford they, the the idea of having a spread out crop rotation or a multi-year cover crop or enough pasture to grow hay to feed animals to collect manure to make compost that's like a luxury and so a lot of, I, I, I feel for a lot of these farms, and I feel like we're in this blessed place here at Caney Fork where we have enough space to farm, hopefully, in a responsible way. And a lot of farmers are confronted with a different reality. And so what they, what they need to do to survive economically or the system that they're in or the, the paradigm that they're in is they need to bring in from the outside because it's more valuable for them to just crop, crop, crop than to interrupt that cropping system. You know, I remember when I was, I was years ago in the Salinas Valley looking at um, farm equipment for vegetable growing, because that's like the, you know, the salad bowl of the United States is the Salinas Valley. It's where all the lettuce is coming out of. And, and I was talking with one of the, um, the, the farmers that was using some of the equipment I was looking at. And I was and so naive because I was coming from the East Coast and from the Hudson Valley and from this very idyllic farm community. And I was like, you know, I'm just really curious about your crop rotation. And like what, <laughs> and I'm like <laughs> laughing at myself for asking that question now. Like what, what cover crops like work well and the timing. You know, and he's like, we, we don't have time for cover crops. This is like crop after crop after crop. Because their, their margins are. Operation? What's that? Was this an organic operation? I'm it curious. wasn't. No, it wasn't. Okay. It wasn't. But um, anyway, you know, it's just this. It's just that level of intensity. So, 
I don't mean to get off on a, on a, on a tangent, but the idea of farm-generated fertility, I, I guess the takeaway for me is it totally changes the paradigm of how you think about the farm and the scale that's needed to create, for a farm to, to actually generate its own fertility and generate that gift of nutrition for, for human beings. Yeah, and it, it's not a tangent because it's, it's really at the core of what the Real Organic Project is all about is because um, you really can't have a sustainable farm if you're not closing some of those loops. And I understand there are so many tiny farms now. Almost the next generation of farmers has had to um, become vegetable farmers because you can grow on an acre and actually make a living. And you certainly can't do that with a cow, you know? Mm. <laughs> and so, um, and, and it's okay if you're right in the middle of the town. And in my mind, it's really what organic has, has been about is closing some of those nutrient uh, cycles. And so if you're, if you're taking the compost produced in the city and in the olden days, it used to be like, you know, the organic farmers or all the farmers back then were organic. So the farmers would collect the horse manure that was collected, you know, by all the horses in town and then recycle it back on the farmland. But I think, you know, we've, we've, we've stopped, um, we've got all these leaky kind of nutrient cycles and mm. that's, that's what's so unsustainable about yeah. the way we're farming now. So it really is, at the crux of what we're talking yeah. about and, and how we get moved towards a more sustainable agriculture. And it's not, you know, it's wonderful to be able to um, have enough space, like you said, to integrate all of these operations. That sounds like that's what Caney Fork is doing. We haven't even gotten there. We've got so much to talk about, but um, you know, I feel like it, it also can be done um, sustainably if you, if you're actually composting, you know, yeah. and, or, or there's in Europe, there's a lot yeah. of partnerships in, in the Demeter uh, biodynamic certification where, you know, you've got a goat operation and they provide manure to their neighbor for, you know, the vegetable operation. But just, just thinking about how we close these nutrient cycles. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? I have, uh, yeah, a lot. And thank you for bringing that up because I, I use the term luxury. Like it, it's a, it feels like a luxury as a farmer to farm in this way here. Like we, we've been blessed with good land. We've been blessed with enough time to develop systems that are closing loops. And um, I don't mean that as a value judgment against those farmers that can't, the farmers that you reference that are in urban environments or can only afford a few acres and need to grow high value crops immediately. And I think that what you mention with this leakiness <laughs> we have a leakiness like it's when you say leaky what comes to mind to me is like there's just like sloppy it's like messy it's not thoughtful the way yeah. we've designed our environments and the way that we're living and so yeah there is this these all of these like open loops of of potential being wasted being lost and actually becoming a pollute pollutant and a contaminant and so this idea of um communities of farmers working together or communities supporting farmers to have the opportunity to work together and share nutrients, share equipment, share space, having overlapping enterprises that work together, that is an inspiring vision and feels like a way more realistic vision in the near future for people to enter into agriculture in a, in a, in a way where we're still striving for this wholeness. Because the other, the other end of that that I've seen in my own farming journey and in working with new and beginning farmers is like, you know, gosh, it takes a long time to even get decent 
at some of this stuff, <laughs> you know, like oh yeah, <laughs> you only have so many. I think it was Jean Jean Paul said like you only have so many. You could farm your whole career and still only have twenty chances or thirty chances to grow a tomato. And I so know, just it like makes me cry. It's such yeah, a just think thing. about and that. You only have twenty shots. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, and so it's like okay, so the ask here is for an individual to go out and figure out how to get enough land to grow hay, grain, support animals, grow vegetables, find their markets, and get good at all of those things. And guess what? Like, you didn't come from a farming background because there aren't any farmers anymore. And so it's at like... At least doing it this way. Yeah, yeah. So right. So it's like, that's a huge ask. So, you know, both like allowing farmers to develop at the right pace and get really good at certain things, but also developing the social space for farmers to learn how to work together and not compete, and for us as a culture to understand what that even means, like your original question of what it means to have a closed-loop system and why that might be important for us to um, actually like protect and incentivize. Like Those things need to develop. The value system needs to change um for it for this regional level community level farmer collaboration to start to emerge but that i think is the future probably probably more of the future than like a you know thousand acre 750 acre caney fork farms springing up around the country as much as i would love to see that and help facilitate that i think that there is this other future too of small farms finding ways of working with one another. I think what's happened too is our knowledge has advanced so much so that, you know, I've got some beekeepers on my farm and they help, you know, my strawberries and my cucurbits get pollinated. And, um, but, and that's a beautiful thing. Um, but also like the knowledge that it takes to have a healthy healthy bee colonies right now the the bio control with varroa yeah. mites and yeah. they know so much just for bees and yeah. if i were to take on all of these entities um you know i'm i'm astonished with what some of the orchardists you know the biocontrol that they're using and you know so this is not an old way of farming this is it is but we have advanced so much yeah. in 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 you know our knowledge and how to do it well with all the new diseases and insects that have come our way over time so um i almost think these partnerships are essential yeah. um because there's just too much knowledge to be gained in order to do it right so um, yeah yeah and, and, and that's like also a more invigorating and fun way to approach it. It's like, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, wouldn't it be more fun to work with peers? Wouldn't it be more yeah. fun to, to not be this lonely farmer with your nuclear family set alone in a rural place that's dead? Um, yeah, and it, I've got honey on my table right now, and I had mm -hmm. nothing to do with it. You know, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> and they've got some broccoli on their plate. You know, it just, it, it does make sense to partner up. And I think that, um, you know, figuring out how to do that well without, um, you know, people feeling like they're getting taken advantage of, it's mm. complicated, but it really takes community. I'm curious kind of what the community is like on Caney Fork. You mean at the farm directly? Yeah. How many different uh, enterprises do you have going on? How many different people? And, and is the community involved at all in your CSA and all that stuff? Yeah. Great question. So we have seven em employees right now. Um, two of them, Renan and, and Gabi, 
um, have been here for going on three, four years. So that's like a good, I think that's a, like a good span to start to really, to have humans really start to feel the place and see the place and they've built the place to a large extent. Um, and then we ha we've have um, other members of our team that are, you know, we say they're crew or assistant managers and they've, God, they've also contributed a whole lot and they're coming from different places around the country and they'll probably be here for a year, maybe two years. And then we have um, our director of marketing is actually local. She's from Tennessee. She had been working with Jeff Poppin, the barefoot farmer is another biodynamic farmer close by here. And so she's very integrated into the community. So, and then our delivery driver is actually local here to Carthage. And she's just out of college. And man, is she good at talking. <laughs> she, <laughs> I don't know. It's like a Southern thing or something. But she is just, she can just let it roll. And it's really amazing to, to, to listen to her. So she's like perfect for, for delivering because she drops off the CSA to community members. And uh -huh. I'm sure can just, just get it going. Answer their questions and promote the yeah, farm and all that. Yeah. 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 So we, ha we have a really dynamic team. We have a young team. I think the average age is like 25 or 26 of our team members. Um, and then, and we actually have two students from Skidmore College that are spending their semester here at the farm. So Skidmore College, like a lot of colleges awesome. around the country right now, decided to go back, but they had the option to stay remote. And they were here over the summer doing research. And we were like, this is going to be a way better place to go to school then back <laughs> on campus. Lucky dogs. Yeah, yeah. So they're, so they're both continuing to do research and taking classes here. And so I think of our team as like, you know, young, but it almost feels like young, multi-generational young. Like there's, there's this learning between the, the folks on the team that are in their early 20s, mid 20s, and late 20s. And that's beautiful to see. Like that like level of mentorship starting to happen really early on. Um, and then I think of like how we relate to that. So I, I'm thinking of your question of how we relate to the broader community. Like there's the local community that we're really starting to, um, serve, I feel through our CSA. Um, you know, when COVID kind of hit, we say when, it, when it hit, I guess when it became like a, a known thing sometime in March, um, mm -hmm we like a lot of farms decided to pivot all of our or pretty much all of our restaurant farmers market sales into a csa and that mm -hmm. was something that we had been talking about doing but we're unsure if we we're going to be able to get enough csa members quick enough and it happened like overnight so all of yeah. a sudden the farm is very much connected into the community which is beautiful um and so there's the local community and then there's kind of this nashville community that we reach and we still do work with chefs throughout Nashville and um, kind of are doing that thing with, you know, high quality meat, interesting vegetable varieties, chestnuts, which we can talk more about, like what, what do you even do with chestnuts <laughs> from a culinary <laughs> perspective? Um, right. So like all of that's happening. And then for me, like one of the most inspiring parts of our integration of the community for me has been this journey of learning from farmers in, in the area. And so right now I can think of like three examples. One is the farmer we're working with to kind of learn how to grow grains um, or at least 
work with on a contract basis for him to help us integrate a grain system, you know, because he's got a lot of the equipment and the knowledge, even from a conventional background. So it's like this blending of, you know, knows how to get the thing in the ground, knows how to prepare soil in a way, and we're integrating a different fertility and crop rotation and seed varietal thing into that. So that's a conversation. And then there's conversations with, with the, the guys that help us with our hay production and like them watching our hay fields transform slowly, but getting better. And that's been an amazing conversation to take part in because there was a lot of skepticism early on from our community and our neighbors because we have a lot of very public facing land. You know, you drive by it every day and farmers would drive by and be like, man, they're just not... They're just not getting it. And now all of a sudden right. it's like we're getting it, but it's taken long it's taken longer under an organic program. Okay. And then and then there's the community uh, that had this um, orchard that I mentioned, the mature orchard that now we're converting into um, organic production. And that's been an amazing story too of talking with the landowner about the chemicals he used to apply and why and the thinking there and it's just sort of like, let us try it this way and see what happens and, and let the results speak for themselves. In all cases, it's sort of been like, met with like a little bit of this, but also like an openness to see and, you know, I can just play like the young, naive, kooky, hippie farmer or something and then like let the... <laughs> results kind of start to unfold and hopefully speak for themselves over time, which is what, which is the phase we're in starting to come into now, which is actually really exciting to be able to just have a beautiful, productive hay field that's requiring less inputs than the neighbor, then letting that kind of tell the story. Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe Tell your friends and leave us a rating and review so that others can find us. A video version of this interview is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 93. Please join us next time when we'll continue on with the second half of our interview with Zach Wolf, the former farm manager at Al Gore's Real Organic Project certified Caney Fork Farms in Tennessee. To support this podcast and our certified farms, become a recurring donor at realorganicproject.org and get the benefits of being a real friend, including our book club, where you can ask many of our favorite authors your questions. Our next guest is Mark Schatzker, this Thursday, December 8th. Mark is the author of The Dorito Effect, the surprising new truth about food and flavor. I hope to see you there.